Good morning. Good morning. If you are a guest, uh, we're glad that you're here and that you're spending your morning with us. A um, couple things. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 1. It's on that card, but if you have a Bible, uh, you can open it up or uh, turn your Bible on on a device that you have. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one that's the same translation that we'll use this morning in the seat that's in front of you, and you can use that and keep it uh, as well. We're going to be in John chapter 1 as we continue in this series. While you're turning there and getting yourself ready, let me give you a couple of other updates. Uh, one, um, we haven't necessarily asked you to do this in a little while, but uh, one of the values we have as a church is relational. We want to be a relational place, accessible, stay connected to you, meet needs, be able to pray for you. So if you would take a moment to fill out the online connect card, let us know you were here. This is for everybody. You can go on the website uh, or download. There's a church app. Uh, don't ask me how to get it, but uh, there is one uh, and you can get to it. I'm going to get in trouble for that. Uh, but if you would uh, check that out and fill out an online connect card, that would be great. Another thing is uh, I wanted to explain to you a little bit about the giving trees. Uh, so we have these trees that are out there uh, where you grab a little card. We did partner with the Boone County Mentoring Partnership to provide Christmas gifts for the mentees. And so you can grab one and there's a list and you can bring the gifts, wrap them up, you bring them back here, put them under the trees. In addition to that, there are care packages for the caring center. And so you can come, you're like, hey, I don't see a card to get gifts for one of the kids. That means they were all taken. Grab a, a, a card and get a whole care package uh, of food to bring. We also have care packages for those that are not able to meet, and they're kind of shut in because of uh, everything that's going on. And so you can grab those. Now, there was one more thing that was brought to us, and it was kind of hard to say no to, so we're extending this uh, as an opportunity for you as well. In the big tree in the middle lobby here, the real big tree, underneath you'll notice some post office boxes that are already packed. Well, uh, there was a group of people that have packaged care packages to send to deployed soldiers uh, over Christmas. They cost $10 to mail, and they said, hey, would we be able to uh, extend that opportunity? And so you can grab as many of those as you want to, bring them to the post office, you can ship them, and uh, soldiers overseas will get uh, a Christmas care package. So there's a lot there, and I, I recognize that, but we wanted to at least make you aware of all of those opportunities. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll jump into our passage this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here, and we want to hear from you. And so my prayer is simple. God, would you give us the ears to hear what you would have to say to us? And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've encountered this book, um, but it is the number one selling book uh, for a long time, even on Amazon. I haven't checked that, and so you can fact check me on this, but I'm pretty sure it's still top three on Amazon, maybe all-time uh, sellers. Um, this book, uh, by the after the first year that it was published, uh, had sold, or actually the first six years, it had sold 18 million copies. In its first decade, it sold 32 million copies. As of this year, according to the publisher, it's sold 55 million copies and has been translated into 85 different languages. It is known as The Purpose Driven Life, right? Now, I want to be clear. I'm not here to bash this. I think this book has helped millions of people, and uh, the, the author of the book, it's, it's great. But it is a little perplexing to me. And I'll tell you why. The subtitle down here at the bottom says, what on earth am I here for? Um, which is a great question. And it's a good question that's answered in the book. Again, I have no issues with the book other than the number one group of people that would purchase this book to seek the answer to the question, what on earth am I here for? The number one group of people that were driven, you see what I did there, to this purpose-driven life were Christians which is a little bit perplexing to me because of all people on planet Earth who should have a very clear understanding of their purpose in life, it's Christians. It's followers of Jesus. 
And I think for far too long, we've been going to the wrong book to get an answer to that question. Now, this isn't to say that you can't learn from other people. I think that uh, you can learn quite a bit from other people in the form of advice and teaching. The danger, though, is that we never learn to walk with God on our own. We never learn to journey with him and to seek his wisdom by ourselves. Another danger is we create a celebrity culture within the church where we elevate human beings to places they should not be elevated to. We begin to worship the messenger and not the object of their message. And we have a whole host of leaders within church culture that are far too comfortable allowing all of the attention to be on them. But let me be honest, it's really easy to do. I mean, it is really easy to desire a big following, the book contracts, the green room where you can just hang out, come out and teach, and then disappear again. It's easy to want a big social media following, a platform to be an influencer, to get all of the attention. It is a very big desire because the roar of the crowd is intoxicating. It's intoxicating. But it's detrimental to the church. People begin to follow a certain leader, and it feels great. In fact, I would argue it actually probably works well for a while. Before long, though, they create a dependency upon this person. And that seems to be fine, too, because I just want to learn from this person. This person has the best teaching. I just, But all of a sudden, that ministry no longer exists. That leader fails or that leader tumbles into sin. And all of a sudden, the source that you went to for your own walk with God, which was ill-placed to begin with, is now gone. And you're left with nothing. See, too many people... Learn to walk with God based on somebody else's relationship with God and not their own. Look, to build ministry or church brands in general, I think, is foolish. I'm just going to say it. But to build them around human personalities is dangerous. It's dangerous. Because we're not the point. We are not the point. The point is not the messenger. It's the message. And we have to begin to teach people to walk with God on their own, to know him to know how to connect with him, to know how to hear from him, to seek him, to be focused on him and not on a human being. The reason I say all of this is because our text today is a really vivid reminder of how important this truth is. It's a reminder of what our purpose really is in life. Earlier this week, I got to sit in a room with current and past elders of our church. These are the leaders of New Hope, the spiritual leaders of our church sat in a room with a group of men that have been here since day one of this church and have all kinds of wisdom. And man, it gave me a lot to think about all week. It was really this incredible moment to be there. And I remember one of them saying, I'm by far the oldest person in the room. And they were saying it jokingly. And I thought to myself, well, I am by far the youngest person in the room. And I don't deserve to be in a room like this. But here I am listening. And there was a lot of things said. One of the guys said this. This was just a thought that I've been thinking about all week. It's simple and yet, man, profound. He said, look, worship is what I do with my life. It's an older gentleman. Worship's what I do with my life. And so if I'm really worshiping, living this life, God's going to put certain people on my heart and I would do well to obey him and reach out. That's pretty good. (laughs) But the the comment that really got me was from another person. And I'm I'm not going to say names, but he said this. He said, hey, when the Bible begins, you can't just use the first three words. You can't. It's got to be. It can't, it can't be in the beginning, which is funny because that's the name of the sermon series we're in right now. So thanks for that, right? <laughs> but he said the Bible doesn't start with three words. It has to start with the first four. It's in the beginning, God. 
And he said, because if you don't get that right, you'll miss everything else. We have to begin with him. Last week, David walked us through the first verse in John chapter 1, the Christmas story from John's perspective. And he told us that you can't start John's gospel. Anything else John wants to say begins with that first phrase. And if you don't get that right, you'll miss everything else. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was Jesus. Everything else he's going to talk about, you've got to get that part right. Because if you don't get that part right, you're going to miss everything else that John has to say. And so as he continues on, getting that part right, in the beginning is Jesus. That's where we start. That's the most important piece. Now he's going to introduce us to a character. He's going to remind us, what does it look like to live a life that begins with Jesus? What does it look like for someone to live their life knowing that, hey, the most important thing is Jesus, and I want to get that right? What does that life look like? And we're going to see that in the life of John the Baptist. And so John chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 6. We're going to walk slowly through this to learn a few different things. Here's what John, the author of the gospel, who, ironically enough, never refers to himself as John in that gospel. So when you read the name John in the gospel of John, he's more than likely referring to John the Baptist. So he says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. We're going to pause there. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. If you were to go back to the language this was written in, and I'm only saying this because it makes a really interesting point. The verse is, literally reads this way. If you translated it from the Greek language, literally, it would say, there came into being a human being named John who was sent from God. So there came into being a human being. This is the same language he uses in verse 3. If you remember John chapter 1, verse 3, he said this, through him all things were made. There came into being. Because John gets his origin in him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. There came into being a human being who finds his being and his origin in being a being in God. Really important because before you say anything else about John, the author of the gospel, John, and John the Baptist were both keenly aware of where their story began. His story begins. I came into being because of him, so anything else I do is because of him. Right? That's the whole point of his life. Now, if we look at the rest of the Gospels, we learn quite a bit about uh, John, the God, uh, John the Baptist. If you look at the other Gospel accounts, we learn he's a pretty ordinary guy. John the Baptist was an ordinary person. We know that because if you look at his life, from the, when you read about his ministry early on, all the way until he is killed later on in the Gospels, John never performs a miracle. I find that fascinating. He performs no miracle. He does a lot of teaching, he does a lot of talking, he does a lot of question asking. And you would think that somebody with such a large following, with such attributes and accolades being thrown his way, someone so closely related to Jesus, that somewhere along the line you'd see something that you would say is miraculous, but you don't. He's just a normal human being. He's just a guy, an ordinary guy. But we also learn about him is that this ordinary man lived an extraordinary life. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus said of John the Baptist this. He said, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Like, whoa. Like, what a statement. Jesus says, hey, this ordinary guy lived such an extraordinary life that among all people that have been born, he's lived the most extraordinary. Something about this ordinary guy's approach to his life made Jesus describe him this way. So not only is he ordinary, but he lived through ordinary means an extraordinary life. But this life wasn't void of struggle. We learn later on that 
Uh, he gets imprisoned, wrongfully imprisoned. While sitting in the prison cell, the enemy comes to him and begins to attack through in the form of doubt. He battled doubt. The cousin of Jesus, the one who Jesus described as being such an extraordinary person, wrestled with real doubt to the point that he sent people back to Jesus to ask the question, are you really the one that I've been given my entire life to testifying about? Is it really you? Are you really that one? And the doubt, Jesus comes back. What does he say? He says, hey, just so you know, the lame walk, the deaf hear, right? The mute speak. I got it, John. It is me. Also, his life, this incredible life that he lived, was not void of pain and struggling. So what we learn is the life of a witness, someone who says, I'm going to give my life to witnessing about Jesus, doesn't come without pain and struggle. In fact, he's wrong. I think part of his pain came in the fact that he lived in the wilderness, had to wear camel skin clothing and eat bugs. That's not the best way to live. And in my opinion, you might be, well, that's actually a great diet, Rob, and it's health. No, that's, that's a form of suffering to me. Coming from that, though, he's wrongfully imprisoned, left all by himself, rejected, and ultimately beheaded. I mean, his life doesn't mean it was easy simply because of what he had given his life to, and that's an important point. The last thing, though, is this, that we see in John's life, he had a really crystal clear understanding of his purpose in life. He knew what on earth he was here for. He knew it. He knew that every day he woke up, he was going to interact with people. And, and certain things needed to be done. He knew every day when he woke up, he'd have a to-do list. He knew when he woke up, he had places to go and things to accomplish. And the umbrella over all of it was his deep understanding of what his purpose was. And that purpose was to show itself in all of those encounters. And he gives us a, an idea of that purpose in verse 7. He, John the Baptist, came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Again, translation is important. The translation might say something like this. He came to be a witness and to bear witness. But it's distinct in the translation, which means those are two different ideas that, that John, the author, is giving us about John the Baptist. He came uh, to be a witness and he came to bear witness. We typically combine those two things and maybe only focus on one element, which is to bear witness, meaning what you talk about matters. And everybody's life is a witness to something or someone, everybody. And how do you know that? Well, what do they bear witness to? What are the clothes that they're wearing? What are the conversations that they're having? What is it that when you're around that person, when you're done being around that person, what is it that you talked about more than anything else that you could clearly see that's what's most important to that person? That's what they bear witness to, both in the words that they speak and in the life that they live. But there's another element here that John reveals to us. He came to be a witness, meaning it was far more than what he said and what he did. It was who he was and who he believed he was at his very core. Meaning, if you sat the guy down and said, who are you? He would start first and foremost with, I'm a, I was a human being who came into being because of God. I, my purpose in life is to be a witness to how great he is. He had a very clear understanding of what his purpose in life was. So the question isn't, you know, what is my purpose? Like, everybody has a purpose. The question isn't, am I a witness? Everybody in this room, whether you follow Jesus or not, you're a witness to someone or something. The question is, what or who are you a witness to? And how well of a testimony is your life giving to that which you are witnessing to? What is your life saying about what you claim to be a witness of? How does it speak to it? The conversations that you're having, the things that you give your money to, the attention that you give to certain things. 
How you develop the, the attention that you accept or deflect. If we watched you live, how, or how would we describe what it is that your life is a witness to? Because for John, it's very clear. From the very beginning of his life, we see this, right? Do you remember when Mary, the mother of Jesus, is pregnant with Jesus, and she goes to visit Elizabeth? When she walks into the house, no one else knowing what's going on. So Mary understands this, and that's it. No one else in the world knows what's going on. She walks into the house before she explains to Elizabeth what's taking place. Elizabeth, who could not get pregnant for years, as a part of the Christmas story, for most of her life she was infertile. Then all of a sudden God blesses her and Zechariah with a child. She, too, is pregnant with John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. And when Mary, who's pregnant, walks into the room, and there is Elizabeth, who is also pregnant, neither of them having communicated yet what takes place. I mean, from the womb, John the Baptist was a witness to Jesus. The Bible says that inside Elizabeth's womb, he flipped for joy. He, ah, the Messiah is here. That's it. That's my purpose. That's my purpose. It's all about him. So from the very beginning, everything in his life said, it's all about him. Every, it's all about him. Don't pay any more attention to the fact that my mom's pregnant with me. Just pay attention to the fact that she's pregnant with the Messiah. Like everything in him from the moment before he was even born, was about testifying to the greatness of Jesus. You might say it this way. There was nothing original about John the Baptist. He just pointed to Jesus. John Chrysostom said it this way. The excellence of a messenger consists in saying nothing of his own. Everything about this guy, it's just Jesus. It's not me. You've heard me use this before, so bear with me here. If you've ever had a chance to travel to, whether driving or fly to Washington, D.C., it's a pretty great experience. But if you go at night, something that you will notice is the Washington Monument, this incredible uh, pillar of stone that is a, a tribute uh, to the founder of our country that stands. And at night, it gets lit up like this. Whether you're flying into D.C. or you're driving into D.C., when you see that, what you don't say to yourself is, would you look at those spotlights? That's incredible. I mean, those hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it is. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of light that it takes to light up this monument. And anyone who sees it for the first time is not thinking about, I can't believe how much money those lights cost. And well, look at the positioning of the lights. That's just an incredible lighting. You might be, oh, I do. No, you don't. Okay? Everybody, when you first look at it, you might have that thought come to you eventually, but when you first look at it, you're like, wow, would you look at that? Would you look at that? Because the purpose of the lights is not to shine on themselves. The purpose of those lights is to shine on something, to highlight it. John the Baptist is saying, my purpose in life is I'm just a spotlight. That's it. My whole purpose in life, whether I'm having conversations or I'm making major decisions, no matter where I move, what job I take, how I interact with my coworkers, the vision I have for my future, the house that I buy, the neighborhood I live in, whatever it is, the most important thing for me is that my life is a spotlight pointing to Jesus. When people are done being around John the Baptist, he would say, all I want you to be thinking about is Jesus, not me. Not me. That was the whole purpose of his life. He's describing what does it mean to have real purpose as a Christian. It means that your life is all about pointing to him, and that's it. And fill in the blank in any arena of your life. It's about pointing to him, highlighting him. And it's evident when people get this because they rarely, if ever, will talk about themselves or accept accolades or brag about their accomplishments or talk at length about what they've done. In their Most of the time when you see someone who gets it, all they do is one of two things. They want to talk about Jesus or talk about how to get you to understand him better. 
This is the life of a witness. In fact, we get a glimpse of how John really lived this out. If you scroll down to verse 19, they begin to try to put more on him than he's comfortable accepting. Look at how this plays out. This was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Verse 20, if you underline or highlight in your Bible, I can't stress enough, commit this one to memory. This describes John the Baptist. He did not fail to confess. He was not ashamed of Jesus. He did not cave to the pressure, but instead confessed freely. In the moment when all of the attention could have been on him, he confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. Well, they answered him, okay, well then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? No, you're not getting it. That's not who I am. Now think about how tempting it would have been. Even in that day, in our day, it's very tempting as well. But in that day, imagine how tempting it was. For all of the attention, all of the accolades, everybody to look to him. Like, man, this is the guy. This is what everyone should come and talk to you. Everyone should follow you. This is the guy you want to bring all of your attention to. Just imagine. He might be thinking, man, I can get out of the wilderness, get rid of this camel skin clothing. I might be able to eat a little bit of meat every once in a while. Like, this could be my trip out of here. All, they, that's who they think I am? I can capitalize on this a little bit. I could create a little bit of a marketing plan. I could get to be well-known a little bit. And what does he do? Like, no, no, no. Stop paying attention to me. Stop trying to put on me what I don't deserve to have put on me because my life is all about him. So finally, they don't get it. It, can't, it doesn't compute in their minds that someone would not accept this kind of attention. So in verse 22, finally, they said, okay, well then who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? I mean, you have to say something about who you are. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. I'm just a voice pointing to someone who's better. That's what he says. Anyone who's hearing that at that time would have understood, like they would have, Isaiah 40 would have jumped out, okay, make straight the way of the Lord, because that was a term that was used to describe coming royalty. When a king in the ancient world had not been to a certain part of his kingdom, or there was uncharted parts of the land that he ruled over, he would send out messengers. I mean, this was actually a practice. Those messengers would make an announcement to all of the people, the king is coming, so make his path straight. And there's evidence for this outside of the Bible. There's an ancient inscription from ancient Babylonia that says these words. It says, make his way good, describing a king that was coming, renew his road, make, his, make straight his path, make a track for him. In other words, they built new roads, they built new highways. They would go onto existing roads if that's where the king was going to travel. And they would remove boulders and rocks and they would just make it a smooth ride for the king to make his way into town. And this symbolized certain things. They put all of the effort into building new roads and clearing roads for their kings, traveling around their uh, kingdoms for multiple reasons. The first is this pointed to the authority of the king. Meaning when the king came, you paid attention. When the king was coming, you stopped what you were doing and you focused on what he wanted. When the king was on his way, you cleared the roads to make sure that whatever else is going on in life, I got to make sure that this road is clear for him. And you held nothing back. You didn't hold back anything. You gave it all. Don't you think about the implications of that at this coming time of Christmas? Is that not what we do for this Advent season? Prepare the way the Lord. We wait with the anticipation for his final coming. And what are we doing? We're constantly looking in our hearts to clear the roads and the paths and to allow him to make new paths to our heart. We are making straight the way of the Lord in our own lives all the time. That's what it means to slow down enough to reflect on what it means that Jesus is your king. You're doing the hard, hard work 
of heart excavation, allowing him to constantly be working. The second thing, though, is this. It represented this making new roads in the ancient world. It represented the healing influence of a real king. You had all these other rulers that didn't clear the roads, but when a real king was coming, it just had a different feel. And you know this, right? This is common sense for us, right? Under a good coach, what does a team do? Team flourishes. Under a bad coach, they suffer. Under a good manager, the business flourishes. Under a bad manager, the business does not. Under a good leader, a community flourishes. Under a bad leader, a community suffers. This pointed to a real, a good king coming. So think about it, whether you're a parent, you're a husband, you're in your home and you're loving and you're caring for your family, whether you lead a D group, whether you're a manager at work, when, ex- when authority, rightful authority is exercised in a righteous way, it's like rain on a thirsty field for anyone who has to sit under it. It brings life. It makes everything better when a leader leads in a way that is healthy and good. So when a king would come to a desolate, broke-down place, when he was gone, when he came through, it brought healing to that town. The roads were created, and the roads were cleaned up, and people could move around when the king came. And John is saying, I'm here to, to make room for the one who's going to come, and he's going to bring healing and restoration. That's my whole goal in life. It's the testimony of a witness, someone who says, I'm a witness to Jesus. That's what I give my life to. That's it. It's a testimony that says my heart was a broken and desolate place of brokenness and pain. And then somebody came along and they witnessed. Somebody came along and they pointed me to the king. They said, the king wants to come. And because of their witness, I made a straight path for the king in my heart. And now this broken, desolate heart has been repaired and it's flourishing, and it has life because the king who came, not because of the one who witnessed. It's all about the one who came to bring that healing. I like the way that Matthew Henry says it. He says it this way. John the Baptist, he was a star, like that which guided the wise men to Christ, a morning star, but he wasn't the sun. Not the bridegroom, but a friend of the bridegroom. Not the prince, but a harbinger. All he did was deflect and point. Look at how he continues to tell the Pharisees about this, verse 24. Now the Pharisees who had been sent, they questioned him. Well, why do you baptize if you're not the Messiah or Elijah nor the prophet? He says, well, I baptize with water. And you'll hear him explain this more in in Matthew and Luke's account. But he says, but among you stands one who you do not know. And then this is great. He says this, he's the one who's coming. And I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I'm not worthy Now, this is a really scandalous statement in those days because they had a system, if you picture a ladder, and the higher the rung on the ladder, the more notoriety, the more influence, the more power, the more comfort that you had in their society. That's the way it worked in their world. So the lower the rung, the worse off you were. And in that culture, the lowest rung would have been a slave. It would have been a slave. On that low rung, meaning those on the higher rungs, the work of a slave in that day was to untie your sandals and clean your feet. And so for John the Baptist to say, when you compare what I'm doing to the one who's coming, I, I don't deserve to untie his shoes. What he's saying is this. When you compare me to Jesus, I don't deserve to be on the bottom rung. I don't even deserve to be on the ladder. I deserve to be in the dirt, on the floor. When you compare me to him, I am nothing. 
He would go on to describe this later on as more and more people questioned, why is it that you don't want attention? Why is it, you, mean, you just keep deflecting all of the attention in every part of your life. Have you ever been around someone like that? At times it's maddening because you just want to know more about that person. But then it's just so humbling because you realize that person genuinely only wants you to know more about Jesus. That's John the Baptist. All he cared about was making much of Jesus in his life to the point that when he described his own life, I think he described it in such a beautiful way. It should be the theme for all of us at Christmas time. When a watching world is looking at the church this time of the year and they're saying, this Messiah that you claim to follow, this Savior that you claim to put all of your hope into, I want to watch how you celebrate him. And we spend all of our time going out and spending money on ourselves and fighting with our family members over Christmas tradition, getting frustrated and irritated about things. The watching world is saying, that's the difference he's made? No, the difference that he makes that should summarize our entire approach, not just to the Christmas season, but every day of life. When someone looks at us, they should see in us how John described himself in John 3.30 when he said this, he must increase, I must decrease. It is not about me. It is all about him. He, I need to make much of him not of myself. Let me close this way. This is a picture of Arturo uh, Toscanini. Correct me later on the pronunciation. He's one of the most famous conductors in uh, all of history. And the story is told uh, of uh, one night in particular where he conducted Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And it was so well done. It was so beautiful that the crowd lost control, right? at an orchestra, like imagine that, right? They jump to their feet, they're screaming, they're whistling, they're stomping their feet, they're clapping, they're yelling, they just have lost their mind to the point where it took him a while to gather himself. And he begins to take a bow. And then he takes another bow because they won't stop. And after the third bow, they finally begin to settle down just a little bit. Then he turns to acknowledge his orchestra and they get riled up again. So he takes another bow to calm them down. He leans into his musicians at that moment. And the story is told, he leans into the musicians and he says, gentlemen, gentlemen, and he gets their attention. And they lean in because they want to hear what the conductor has to say. And his first words are, gentlemen, I am nothing. Well, this startled them, all the musicians, because Toscanini was given a very, he was blessed with a very big ego. (laughs) And so that like threw him off. What? Then he got their attention again. He said, gentlemen, gentlemen, you are nothing. Well, they'd heard that at every rehearsal, right? And so they were used to that. He gets their attention. He goes, gentlemen, gentlemen, I am nothing, and you are nothing. But he goes, Beethoven. Beethoven is everything, everything, everything. Every year when I read about John the Baptist, that's what I come to. I come to a man who has accomplished a lot in his life, but he gets this message across. He says, look, I'm nothing. And you, you're nothing. But Jesus, (laughs) Jesus is everything, everything, everything. Let's pray. God, it is, it really is. At first service, it was this way, it's this way now. It's hard to pray. Because we don't deserve it. We just don't deserve to be in your presence. We don't deserve to have you listening to us right now, for you to hear us right now. We don't deserve it. But in your grace and in your love, you hear us right now. You're hearing me pray. And I'm so grateful. But God, we, to echo the words of Isaiah, we are a people of unclean lips and we live among a generation of unclean lips and we need your grace. 
God, we repent for making life, our personal lives, uh, the church, and anything else about anything other than Jesus. Father, we just repent. Do you renew in us a passion and a desire to make much of him? Would you remind us that we are witnesses and we have witnessed something incredible, something so incredible we could give all the days of our life to it and it wouldn't be enough. So Father, this Christmas, just remind us we are waiting for our king. Would you help us both in our own heart and in the lives of the people all around us make straight a path for our coming king? And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.